Hello, and welcome back to the Shakespeare Birthday Party. My name is Danny Fitzpatrick. I'm Grace Fitzpatrick. And this time, we are discussing the comedy of errors. Dating back to 1594, on the earlier side of the Shakespearean production schedule, as it were, um, it is quite comic, and it is quite erroneous, you could say. Um, due to the phenomenon of twins, and not just any old twins, but double twins. So. And a set of sisters. And a set of sisters. And a lost wife. So here's more or less how it goes down. Aegean, a merchant of Syracuse finds himself arrested in Ephesus. The two cities are at war. Aegean has until five o'clock to raise uh, a fine that he can pay to escape from execution. If he cannot raise it, he will be executed, and that will be the end of him. He delivers the tale of his woe Right, which goes basically something like this, that he, uh, in his early merchant years, um, basically had, uh, had two small sons by his wife um, in the very same inn where his sons were delivered. Um, a poor woman also gave birth to twin sons and Aegean basically purchased them to serve as uh, servants to his sons. As they sailed back to home after this business venture turned birthing expedition, there is a shipwreck. The two sets of twins are separated from each other. Likewise, Aegean is separated from his wife. The guy who is listening to this story says, wow, that is a very sad story. I wish you didn't have to get executed at five o'clock. But that's the law. So now Antiphilus and his servant Dromeo have come from Ephesus, uh, have come to Ephesus, rather, from Syracuse um, to try to find... Uh, their twin twin brothers that they've been separated from. Basically, <clears throat> all kinds of hijinks ensue. Antiphilus and Dromeo of Syracuse are warned to hide their identity, uh, to hide at least their Syracusan identity. Um, <clears throat> Antiphilus of Syracuse meets Dromeo of Ephesus in the street, Dromeo of Ephesus has just come from um, his mistress, Adriana, um, who is uh, frustrated with her husband, Antiphilus, of Ephesus for his frequent, um, his frequent lateness uh, from their table, his uh, dallying at taverns and in the company of courtesans. So um, Dromeo of Ephesus sees Antiphilus of Syracuse, tells him to come home, 
Antiphilus is uh, suitably nonplussed. Um, think being uh, under the impression that he has no wife um, and that his servant Dromeo has no mistress. Nonetheless, he goes along, um, gets home. Adriana rebukes this Antiphilus um, <clears throat> for his tardiness. He sees Adriana's sister, Luciana, and falls in love with her. Antiphilus of Ephesus, meanwhile, Adriana's actual husband, comes back home um, and gets locked out. Right? And uh, is told by the Dromeo who is inside to go away. So, in a fit of pique, Antiphilus of Ephesus um, decides to give uh, this courtesan a gold chain that he has had commissioned for Adriana. Antiphilus of Syracuse, meanwhile, declares his love to Luciana. Right? She is uh, somewhat charmed, but also asks him if he's insane. Uh, Angelo, the goldsmith, who has been commissioned to make this chain for Antiphilus, um, and has given the gold chain to Antiphilus of Syracuse, um, has Antiphilus of Ephesus arrested since he has not paid for it. Dromeo of Syracuse then asks Adriana for the bail money to free her imprisoned husband. The courtesan uh, encounters Antiphilus of Syracuse <clears throat> and sees him wearing the gold chain that Antiphilus of Ephesus had promised her. Antiphilus of Syracuse encounter, uh, is uh, disturbed by her and runs away. Uh, Antiphilus of Ephesus then becomes violent, and so Adriana has to get an exorcist to help uh, drive out this insanity from him. Antiphilus of Syracuse and Dromeo of Syracuse draw their swords um, and then flee into an abbey where, surprise, surprise, um, Aegean's wife is the abbess. And so finally everyone is reunited and uh, it all works out in the end. Uh, one of the things that's very strange <clears throat> or very interesting about this play in a sort of typically Shakespearean fashion is that while it is very silly, um, there are all kinds of like funny little moments that we can talk about. Um, it's also framed within this very moving, tragic tale of Aegean, right? Who not only himself is about to die <clears throat> based on his nationality, but is also facing a death at the end of a life marked by this very intense tragedy of losing his family in the shipwreck. Um, and so, of course, it all it all comes together in this nice, neat Shakespearean way at the end. And yet not without this, uh, this pall of tragedy kind of looming over everything throughout the play. Yeah, I think you're right. It's definitely one of those plays where maybe on the surface it seems like just a funny, you know, a funny Shakespeare play. I mean, it's in the name comedy of errors and it is hilarious to see it performed um i remember going as a very young child to see it performed and i still have vivid um memories of it and it's hilarious um so definitely like there are lots of silly parts 
very funny play, but there is, uh, you do get the sense that there's a deeper meaning, something more to it. It reminds me a lot of uh, Taming of the Shrew, in fact, Mm. where you have just like, on the surface, just a very funny play. You've got like a carousing husband, a discontented wife, just like people beating each other up, that sort of thing. Um, But... I think this is another, I don't know, that what this is another good uh, reflection on marriage, or just like mm. Shakespeare asking a lot of good questions about marriage and the nature of it, um, and uh, something that convinces me of that is the imagery in the play, specifically uh, in terms of like bonds, you think about the bond of marriage, we've got this whole kerfluffle with the chain the gold chain that he's had commissioned for his wife which like maybe that was a normal thing to (laughs) buy for your wife and I only imagine that it means a chain necklace but still like it's referred to as the chain Mm -hmm. um so you can't help but think of imprisonment uh with that that constant image Mm -hmm. being brought up through the play he gets locked out of his home so he's uh uh uh, what's the word he's excluded from like the domicile uh mm-hmm. that very part that he's supposed to be the very location he's supposed to be welcomed in um the relationship that he should have a place in in fact that he should be in charge of um and then you know towards the end i think it is very fitting that you have everything outside of the church all the social relationships, even lifelong trusted friendships or marriages, they're just kind of imploding. But then once the characters make their way over to the church, everything mm. is reunited. Even, and like, you see this, the concept of marriage is uh, transfigured in the end, where you have the abbess, who's actually the wife. Um, and that reuni- reunion um, sort of unifies, brings everything to reunification towards the end. There is like a restoration of harmony there. I think you could argue that Shakespeare is saying, uh, you know, he's he's reflecting on the sacramental reality of marriage mm-hmm. um, as well as just, you know, funny marital relations in general. Um, <clears throat> and the necessary, the necessity of sacramental grace for a marriage to thrive <laughs> mm-hmm. because without it uh you know husbands are getting locked out and giving gold <clears throat> chains to courtesans uh yeah. so mm. yeah yeah that's really good um yeah it's interesting too like once once this confusion really sets in about who people are um like all of these affections start getting passed around in the wrong directions apparently like with uh or at least there's the appearance at least of Antiphilus suddenly turning from Adriana to Luciana uh and these great these great descriptions uh by Dromeo of uh Nell's <laughs> advances mm-hmm. which sound uh quite terrifying terrifying uh, <laughs> Yeah, um, very much like, like the Infanta in uh, Blackadder. Blackadder, yeah. Something like that, um, but yeah, there is yeah that 
that really key resolution that can only take place through the intervention of the abbess at the end. Um, it is interesting also just comparing this play to some of the others um, where there are like lost, basically like families lost, separated through shipwreck in some way, which, which comes up so often in Shakespeare. He loves shipwrecks. Yeah, like I think the one, I think the one that it seems most akin to, to me, is Pericles, mm-hmm. um, which apparently John Gower was kind of a source for, for both plays. Um, and then, of course, it comes up also in uh, The Tempest um, and in Twelfth Night. And, uh, yeah, which also, of course, features the, I guess, I guess not twins, but at least the, uh, the sibling similarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they not twins in Twelfth Night? I think maybe they are. Okay. But I thought they were. Yeah, I can't remember for sure. I think just twins in general are so fascinating. Like, why is that? Why is it that human beings are like so fascinated with the idea of twins? Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, here it's just kind of it's just out of control. It's just like two sets of twins, yeah. really, and they're all getting yeah. mixed up all the time. Oh yeah. Um, and I mean, historically, you think you don't really you don't really think of any lukewarm twins. Like either they're like two halves of the same whole like they they just understand each other they read each other's minds they're very mm-hmm. good friends or they hate each other mm-hmm. um you don't you don't see any lukewarmness or usually it doesn't come to mind but like you think about Romulus and Remus um Jacob and Esau these are some some pretty uh mm-hmm. vitriolic relationships yeah um or volatile relationships rather mm-hmm that can lead to vitriolic circumstances. Yeah, um, and you see, like, with the confusion of identities in this play, how quickly these lifelong relationships break down, which is very troubling. Um, it's like once trust is lost, or at least there's just enough confusion, um, it seems like the characters have no problem just, like, waging full-on war with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think part of the curiosity with twins is that we, <clears throat> I mean, Aquinas even says that, like it's, we're humans. It's our bodies which differentiate us from each other, which, like, specify one human being from another. So, like, the thought of two humans basically having the same body um or looking uh bodily like exactly the same um just raises this question of identity um which like yeah I mean to what to what degree is your um to what degree do you share identity with um a person who is your twin Right, and is it different from the kind of any kind of identity you might have with other people? Um, and yeah, I think I think also there's like just the great opportunity for uh, for jokes that arise, like in the sense of like yeah, I mean I think I'm sure everyone uh, 
like as a kid kind of imagined like all the all the uh jokes you could you could play on people if you had an identical twin mm-hmm. um yeah very uh parent trap definitely style type stuff it is interesting just the idea of being an identical twin like such with such great similarity that it's really hard for other people to tell you apart mm-hmm. immediately I guess it's an instance where it it can it could probably feel like your identity relies on social recognition mm-hmm. um because if uh the people you relate to on a daily basis or just like in general um if they can't tell you apart i think that really muddies the water mm-hmm. in terms of who i am yeah. because if i can't have like a uh, of clear relationship where someone clearly understands who I am and what makes me distinct mm-hmm. versus this just like well these are twins and we don't really know who they are or what they like but they sure do look alike and it's hard to tell them apart you know that mm-hmm. does create a barrier um, to relationship um, yeah <clears throat> yeah for sure so it's strange you know most people don't have to deal with that most people just have to deal with you know regularly being misunderstood not being mm-hmm. misunderstood and also not known yeah. repeatedly mm-hmm. um for sure yeah. yeah for sure mm. yeah it's like the uh the twin probably so often has to face like a look of recognition but also of uh, like kind of apprehension in both sense senses of of the word, where like someone who's looking at a twin often like apprehends who they are, but is also apprehensive about which right particular who they are. Um, right. Yeah. Mm. Um, what are sorry. Mm-mm. Okay. No. Um, what are some of your favorite? moments in this play definitely the part describing Nell as the world yes that's probably my favorite part yeah it's really funny yeah very uh very funny extended metaphor um <laughs> good stuff um yeah it's also just a lot of like yeah it got really crazy at the end when like Adriana is like calling for the exorcist <laughs> and stuff um also, just a lot of, a lot of beatings for Dromeo. Yeah, poor Dromeo. Yeah. <laughs> He's got it rough. Yeah, and that's another, like, there's a, the constant thing where he has to go get the rope. Like, there's just a lot of, like, mm-hmm. bondage imagery uh, yeah. in this play, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, yeah, which is so interesting, too, just given that, like, from birth, the two Antipholuses had... Um, like these servants bound mm-hmm. to them already yeah mm. yeah any uh any concluding thoughts no it's just a very funny play yeah enjoyed it yeah i would really like to see it because i feel like reading it is just uh very challenging in mm-hmm. a lot of ways yeah yeah we should 
Yeah. Sounds good. <laughs> All right. Well, next time we will be turning to something significantly less funny in the shape of King Lear. Mm-hmm. So we we'll look forward to reading that and enjoying that with you at a later date. Until then, party on. <laughs>